the intent this morning is to encourage your heart by talking about first things and last things. First things and last things will be in the book, Paul's letter, uh, first letter to the Thessalonians. So if you'd open your Bible there to First Thessalonians chapter 4, our text will be from verses 13 through 18 will be our text. Uh, but we'll, we'll wind up using practically um, all of the book to set the context of what these precious believers were going through. And uh, I trust that this will encourage our hearts this morning. This is uh, for your comfort. Uh, first things, last things. What could be more appropriate uh, than on the last day of the year to talk about our lives as believers, and then what we have to look forward to in the Lord. So here we are in chapter 4, verse 13 through verse 18. So Paul writes here, but we do not want you to be uninformed Brethren, I kind of like the old translation, we would not, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Uninformed, I guess, is a little more sophisticated. About those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died... And rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for one another. Um, Lord, it's, uh, it's good to be in the company of others who hold a lively faith in you. It's good to hear the wonderful songs of Zion as we testify to your work 
of salvation in us. Now, Lord, help us. Help us to understand uh, the context and understand the words in, that we have before us, that we would be fortified, that we would be built up and uh, leaning into you obediently. Uh, so we give you this time, we, we yield to you, O oh Lord, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So Paul is uh, obviously here talking about things yet to come. And, uh, but what I would like to do as we begin is just set the context. I think the context is, uh, is always important, but probably uh, more important when you're looking at this wonderful letter to the Thessalonians. We're not going to go back and read Acts 17, the birth of the church there in Thessalonica, that uh, city in northern Greece. Uh, but immediately upon receiving Jesus, uh, these, uh, these folks are feeling a backlash of affliction and persecution. I mean, it all just breaks out. In fact, when you read this, this letter, it, you don't go very far in the letter before you find out these folks are really under the gun. First, though, their conversion. Look in chapter 1. Paul says there in verse 3, says he's constantly bearing in mind your work, their work, the work of these Thessalonian believers Work of what? Work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing brethren, listen, beloved by God, his choice of you. And then Paul goes into the, their, the gospel being presented and their response to the gospel. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he, he's talking about their conversion. And then look in verse eight, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So Paul is reflecting on their response to the gospel. There they were, living in Thessalonica. It's a city of idolatry, a city of idols. It's Gentile, there's Jews there as well. We know that because Paul spent three Sabbaths preaching in the synagogue there, explaining to them the gospel. And Paul is just reminded of how they, there was a sharp uh, decision made in their lives that God called them out of this darkness, this worship of idols, living 
in this city of idolatry. And now, all of a sudden, they receive the forgiveness of sin and they're serving a living and true God. They're not serving dumb idols anymore. They're serving God. They have a lively faith. He's talked about their faith. He's talked about their love. He's talked about their hope in Jesus. So I trust that resonates with us this morning. I I trust it resonates with you, that you have a lively faith in Christ, that you love Christ, that there's a, a difference in your life because of the grace of God manifested in Jesus. The love of God for you represented or demonstrated through Jesus Christ. Then he goes on, verse 10, and he says to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Well, you go to chapter 2. There's still some points here. Verse 14, he's talking about the Thessalonian believers. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now think about that. They're in Greece. He's he's comparing them to the believers in Judea. He says... For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You see what he's doing? He's he's highlighting their affliction. They've turned from idols. They're serving the true and living God. But it has not come without some pain and some affliction. In their lives. And in fact, Paul was well acquainted with how the Jews treated the Christians in Judea. And he makes that comparison in verse 14. These people are are in some amount of hardship because of their faith. Verse 15. He refers, he's talking about or describing these Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Uh, So there's some talk there, some reflection on their persecution, the persecution they were enduring. And then add to their Christian life, the affliction, and then this, it gets worse. Paul had not been able to return to them to visit them, to encourage them. He he talks about this, verse 18 of chapter 3. Paul says this, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming For you are our glory and joy. So here are these new believers, brand new believers. And they are afflicted. They are persecuted. On top of that, Paul, who wants to get to them in order to encourage them, 
is unable. And they doubt Paul's intent. They doubt his, uh, the genuineness of his uh, stated desire to be with them. And Paul is just saying, you mean, basically you mean the world to us. We love you. I want to be with you. I want to encourage you. Just haven't been able to do that. He says, Satan hindered us. If you go to verse two in chapter three, what does Paul do? He says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So while Paul recognizes he is unable to go back to Thessalonica and visit them, he says, we've, we've, spent, we've sent Timothy back to you. We're counting on him to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And then he says, why? Verse three is a huge verse. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of our faith and love and that you always... Think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And that's Paul's concern. There's a backlash coming against these people because of their faith. Paul wants them to stand firm. He would love to be with them, but he has been prevented. Verse 12, he says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Go to verse one in chapter four. He says that you would excel still more. Down in verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you brethren to excel still more. He's talking about excelling in this sanctification, in this love for one another, in standing in the truth in spite of affliction and persecution. If you'll notice in every one of these chapters, there's a reference to the coming of the Lord. There in verse 10 of chapter one, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Chapter two, we have the same thing. Who is our hope? or joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Chapter three. So that he may establish your hearts. This is the last verse of chapter three. 
without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, let me take a drink of water. I'm looking for another well this morning. So, the state of mind of these precious people. What's their state of mind? Well, here they are in pain. Their leader, Paul, is not there. There's every reason to believe that these people had an expectation of the imminent return of Jesus. They expect him. I mean, you just read, the, read through the book, read through the letter. Paul's talking about the return of the Lord. And they, they're, they're in readiness for this return. Only one problem, he hasn't returned. And they're in pain. So, in my estimation, these people think that they have missed the catching away of the church and that they are living in the day of the Lord. I mean, I've read this thing two or three, four times, five times this week. They think they've missed the Lord's return, and they're living under his judgment. Read the book for yourself. So what is Paul saying to them? He's saying, no, this is not God's judgment on you. This is not God's wrath on you. We know that because in chapter 1, he says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. The wrath of God, that's different than affliction. The tribulation, the judgment of God, consummated, is not like affliction. It's different, but these people are in pain, and they had expected the return of the Lord. The the persecution has not stopped, and I think they believe they're in the day of the Lord. Remember later on, well, look at Second Thessalonians. He makes, this, he makes this argument with them. He says in chapter 2, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They're confused. They think, boy, all this pain can only mean one thing, God's wrath, God's judgment. And Paul says, no, this isn't the day of the Lord. He says this, don't let anyone in any way deceive you. 
Verse 3, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who does what? Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then look at this. This is a very uh, overlooked verse in these two letters, right there in verse five, he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. Now we don't believe Paul was there long, but while he was there, he was explaining last things. He was explaining to them the day of the Lord. And he's just saying, listen, You can't be living in the day of the Lord, in the judgment of God, in that great tribulation. You can't be there because these things haven't happened yet. And they were nervous. These people are fearful. And Paul is trying to say, listen, the next thing on God's agenda is the catching away. And he mentions that in these chapters. Let's go to our text here. I knew, I I know you were encouraging me to get to the text, but I think it's really important to set the context here. These people are between a rock and a hard place. They don't have a full understanding of what's taking place in their lives. They feel like they've missed the catching away. Right here, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. We think they had a question about their loved ones, their relatives, their friends who had gone to be with the Lord. And this is troubling to them. They have an expectation of the Lord's return, yet fellow believers have started to pass away. And Paul's writing to inform them, to, to help them understand what's taking place. He says about those, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, that word, asleep, it is a, it is a euphemism for death. It's a, it, it just describes that. Remember when... Uh, Jesus was on his way to Bethany and he was going to take care of Lazarus. What did he tell the disciples? He says, we're going there because he's asleep. And the disciples said, well, if he's asleep, um, he'll wake up. It'll be okay. And then Jesus tells him plainly, no, Lazarus has died. So here... He refers to those who died in the Lord as asleep. But this does not refer to the soul. Uh, We'll uh, leave soul sleep uh, to the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe in soul sleep. We do not believe in soul sleep. We believe in body sleep. The body's asleep. The body has died. If someone's asleep, they're resting, they have life, and one day they're what? They'll awake, they'll awaken. 
He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Stephen, when he passed, he was, he was stoned to death. What happened? Well, his soul went to the Lord. He yielded his soul to God, but the body remained. What did Paul say? Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means when someone dies, the body is here, but the soul goes to be with the Lord. And those words present with um, talk about or refer to engagement. There's not a, there's not a soul sleep. The soul is with the Lord and the soul is present with the Lord. That is attentive with the Lord. So the body is asleep. That's the Christian vernacular. And he says, so that you will not grieve. We don't want you to grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And that's the truth. If you wanted to put a sign over the city of Thessalonica, you could have put a big sign that says, Hopelessville. And you could do that for any town or any city. Man left to his own ways, his own sin, is hopeless. There is no hope apart from Christ. And those... uh, those poor uh, Thessalonians there that inhabited that, that city, they're hopeless. But Paul says, we don't want you to grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died, and we do, and rose again, and we do, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So those who have died, that's the, that's the question evidently these Thessalonian believers had. What about those who have died in Christ? And Paul's explaining it. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So evidently that soul does go to be with the Lord because when he comes, he's going to bring with him. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. It just gets better. For this way, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's telling these folks, you have no advantage When the Lord comes, you have no advantage over your loved ones who have died in the Lord. He says, he says, those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's no special privilege for the living Christian over those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, those who have died in the Lord. For the Lord himself, so he's explaining the word for, and he uses that word introductorily there, 14, 15, 16, he's explaining. He 
says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And that is a shout of command. It, it, it would be equated to a military command. It says he's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Now, we don't know which archangel, and we don't know how many archangels there are. There are two mentioned in scripture. You have Michael and you have Gabriel. So evidently it's a significant event because we've got the Lord himself descending and we have an archangel, the voice of the archangel. And those archangels, they're always, Gabriel, Michael, they're always doing business for God. Anytime you read about them in the scripture, they pop up at significant times and they are speaking for God and they are doing the business of the Lord. And then he says, and one more thing, he says, and with the trumpet of God. So whatever's going on here, which is the Lord's return, Paul is saying that it's, it's a noisy time. I mean, there's a trumpet, there's an archangel's voice, and there's a shout of command right there. And what does he say? And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's what that means. They, the living don't have an advantage over those who have died in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. He says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So the dead in Christ rise first. We believe that the dead are united with their spirit their soul at that time. And they now have a glorified existence, a glorified body. Paul doesn't leave out those who are alive. He says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Look at the word caught up. So um, this word's used some 13 times in the New Testament. Uh, Paul uses it when he's talking about being uh, ascending to the third heaven. Uh, the word is used over in Acts 8 when Philip baptizes the Ethiopian and then he is whisked off after the baptism to some other place. He was caught up. He was taken away. Um, the word's used over in John 10. Uh, for a wolf snatching a sheep. It's used in different ways. But here it means to seize by force. The word caught up means to seize by force. And so what he's saying is, we will be caught up 
we will be seized, we will be snatched up together with them. The them there were the dead in Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then the beautiful words here. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And then here it is. This is to be a comfort. This is to be a comfort to you. This happens before the day of the Lord. We're taken up. This should be a comfort. The Christian life is not void of affliction. We are afflicted. In fact, as I studied this, I thought, just like a lot of folks, What does the coming year hold? We may may find ourselves in a similar context to these Thessalonian believers. We're not guaranteed an easier life. In fact, life might get more difficult. We might be anticipating God's return, the return of Jesus, more than we ever have. And there may be delay in that return. But these words are words of comfort. Here's what I love about it. God's got a plan. God's got a plan. He has a plan for your salvation He has a plan for your sanctification, believer. You are to grow in Christ. And we we should be charging into the next moment, the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next year with everything in our being and all the resources of God that he has brought us at our disposal. We should not be backing up, propping our feet up, so to speak, gearing down. No, we should be ramping up in our Christian life to bring glory and honor to him, to, uh, to make use of the time because the days are what? The days are evil. So we dedicate ourselves to the glory of God We dedicate ourselves to his will done through our lives on this earth. I love what he says to these Thessalonians. Yeah, you're disappointed. You're a little confused. You're certainly afflicted, but I want you to excel still more in love. I want you to grow in your faith and don't give up your hope because God's promise will come to pass. And I think this is the difficulty I have with so much uh, end times preaching. And that is there's a connection between the, what's, what God has planned for us and who we are right now as believers growing and excelling in him. So may the grace of God be on you. And may God lead us. And I trust there will be no, um, 
no desire to slough, to get lazy. But that we will, as we get closer to that day and that time, that we will anticipate his coming all the more. And that anticipation will be reflected in a life lived for God in his glory. Would you do that? Would you dedicate yourself to that? Well, the promises are there. And we look forward to his soon return. If you've never trusted Jesus, trust Jesus. If you have, I would encourage you to get around some Christians. Get around some believers. Uh, Plug into a Sunday school class. Uh, We got a men's breakfast coming up on Saturday. Make yourself uh, available for a men's breakfast. Good fellowship, Good fellowship, good teaching, uh, centered on the scriptures. And let's live magnifying the Lord in anticipation of his soon return. Father in heaven, Lord, you're good. Your promises are excellent. Uh, We receive your promises and we recognize your plan uh, for the end. The end is of history uh, as we know it. But Lord, there's so much more there on the other side. We thank you for salvation in Jesus. And if there's one here today that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray today is the day that before it's everlasting too late, they would trust you as their savior. They would turn from the idols of this life that cannot save and they would turn to you, the true living God. And then Lord, for those of us who know you, do the work in our lives. Um, I pray you'd comfort each one today, each one here um, who's seen loved ones go on to be with you. Lord, I pray that our hope would be current and vibrant and that we would glorify you as we look toward that day when the dead in Christ will rise. What a day that will be. We give you praise and honor in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.